0: Hi, my name is Terry Draper from Clatoo, and that's a music band, by the way, and I'm the very next guest on On Screen and Beyond.
1: On
2: Screen and Beyond. An inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Can you believe it? It's episode 490 of On Screen and Beyond your host, Brian Zamrak, This is On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, we go into the musical world, and back in the 70s, there was a group that came out with an album, and people thought it was the Beatles reuniting. The group was Klaatu. The album... Had the hit song Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft on it. Also had uh, Sub Rosa Subway and uh, all sorts. It's just a great album. And we have Terry Draper, one of the members of CLAT2, joining us here on On Screen and Beyond this week. So it's going to be a great show. He has a new album out called Once Upon a Memory, 22 great songs. Be sure to check that out. But we're going to talk about it. Terry will let us in on it, let you know where to get it. But a lot of great things we're going to be talking about. Terry Draper from 2 is coming up in a few minutes, right here on On Screen and Beyond. And we got a great show coming your way. It's going to be a remake of Catch Twenty Two, and George Clooney's going to be in it. We'll be talking about that and a whole lot more on this week's On Screen and Beyond. Let's get ready. It's time for Remake Madness.
0: Hang up and try again.
2: Remake Madness. Warner Brothers is moving along with its remake of 1976's Logan's Run. They have finally attached a writer, Peter Craig. Will. Uh, be writing it he wrote the hunger games mocking jay part one and two and simon kinberg will direct he is part of the x-men franchise and will also be directing x-men dark phoenix the remake of charlie's angels by elizabeth banks has a release date it's coming out on june 7th 2019 so far no actresses have been attached to it in the lead roles so we'll keep you informed when we hear about those. And that's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen be Beyond, upcoming new movies. <music> upcoming new movies? Well, it looks like Tom Hanks will produce a new war film about Normandy invasion called No Better Place to Die. That'll be coming our way on June 6, 2019. Jennifer Lawrence will star in Bad Blood. It's a story about a woman who creates a biotech company that skyrockets the fame and then... Everything happens. (laughs) It's just a big mess. And uh, she gets investigated by federal agencies and the whole works. And let's see, George Clooney. Haven't heard from him for quite a while lately since he's had the kids. But um, it looks like he's going to be starring in a TV miniseries called Catch-22. It's a remake of the uh, Catch-22 movie. And it will have six episodes. that's it for upcoming new movies. Next on screen or beyond... Taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels. sequel city looks like john wick chapter three with keanu reeves will arrive in may of 2019 also in 2019 it'll bring 48 meters down that's a sequel to 2017's 47 meters down they're getting deeper all the time and the boss baby 2 is looking to arrive on march 26th 2021 that's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on, on Screen & Beyond, what's coming away as far as TV on DVD. TV on DVD. Well, April 17th, Genius with Jeffrey Rush will land on DVD. The show was a National Geographic show from producer Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. May 29th, look for Suits season 7 to arrive on DVD, and on June 12th, Ancient Aliens 10th anniversary gift set and DVD will fly into stores with all the first 10 seasons. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on, on screen to be on what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD. <laughs> movies on DVD April 17th. Steven Spielberg's The Post will scurry into 4K Ultra, Blu-ray, and DVD, but it hits digital on April 3rd. 50 Shades Freed. Will be coming at you on May 8th and on May 1st, 12 Strong with Chris Hemsworth fights its way onto Blu ray and DVD. That's it for movies on DVD. Next and on screen to be on, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time, it looks like Becca, the winner of The Bachelor this year, the chosen one by The Bachelor then dumped for the runner-up, it's just getting confusing here, after being proposed to, will be the new Bachelorette. That show will start airing on May 28th. America's Got Talent returns on May 29th. And sadly, David Ogden Steers, the major Winchester on MASH, passed away this past week at the age of 75. That's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity (laughs) Birthdays.
1: you so happy
2: birthday, happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> celebrity birthdays march 12th it looks like james taylor turns 70 march 13th danny masterson of the 70s show turns 42 and march 14th it's michael Kane turning 85 march 15th eva longoria turns 43 march 16th erica strada turns 69 and on march 17th Kurt Russell turns 67. And Gary Sinise, past guest here at On Screen and Beyond, turns 63. And let's see, March 18th, Queen Latifah turns 48. That's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, Lily P. of, uh, where is it here? Uh, Revere, Massachusetts, turns 37 on March 17th. If you, a friend, or a relative are going to be having a birthday, send me the information at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and we'll see what we can do about getting... Your birthday, celebrated by everybody who listens to On Screen and Beyond all over the world. And that's it for listener and celebrity birthdays. Wish you all a very happy birthday. And coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, he's here. Terry Draper, member of Klaatu, gave us Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. And California Jam and all those great songs from the album that many people back in the 70s, when it first came out, thought it was the Beatles reuniting amazing story terry draper's joining us he has a new album out called once upon a memory he's gonna let us in on that too right here terry draper next on on screen and beyond Today our guest on On Screen and Beyond is a musician who was part of a band who back in the 70s many people thought were the Beatles reuniting in secret. Their album 347 Eastern Time by Clatoo and the hit song Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft also became a hit for the Carpenters. He has released many albums over the years since then with the band and on his own and his latest album Once Upon a Memory is now available with some great songs on it. It's Terry Draper. Terry, welcome to On Screen and Beyond.
0: Uh, thank you, Brian. It's a, I'm delighted to be here. I'm, am I the beyond part of On Screen and Beyond? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know,
2: Terry, i I, I got to tell you, I, over the years, uh, I can remember back in the 70s when I was on radio, uh, I I got this album, and it was this amazing album. And I wasn't thinking of what everybody else was talking about, about the Beatles. It was the Beatles and all this stuff. It was just a great album. And since then, I've always loved your music. And now when I found out that you had a new album out, uh, I definitely wanted to talk to you. And uh, I, I've listened to the music, believe me, over and over and over again. <laughs> and, and these songs sound just as fresh and nice as as the songs you did back then. I I, I really have to tell you, you have a great album here.
0: Well, I I appreciate your saying so. Um, One of the things that we tried to do then and uh, that I carry on doing, I hope, is to make music that's timeless and not necessarily uh, pigeonholed into a decade or an era Mm -hmm. or a movement. Although I'm a a big fan of progressive rock, um, the music that I make... I describe as progressive pop. They're essentially pop tunes uh, with quite elaborate orchestrations and and presentations so that they're a little more sophisticated than your average pop song with guitar, bass, and drums, Mm -hmm. you know, using violins or or accordion, uh, whatever the song dictates, whatever will make this song sound better is uh, what I'm prepared to do for it. And uh, Klaatu followed those same principles. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Once Upon a Memory, it just came out, right, in January? Yep. And it's 22 songs, which is, which is a large amount of songs for most albums. Uh, you know, a lot of times back in, back in the day, <laughs> if you had 13, you were getting a lot. <laughs> but uh, you've come out with some great stuff here. Tell us about the album, the, the, the concept of the album itself.
0: Well, the reason it's got 22 songs is because this particular album, which is a compilation of sorts, has been in the works for many, many years. Um, I took my first real road trip in 1975. I I drove my sports car with a friend from Toronto to Acapulco and uh, drove down Route 66 and stood at the uh, gates to the west in St. Louis and did all sorts of interesting things. Um, but as luck would have it, we got robbed in Acapulco. Mm-hmm. And I came home and wrote this song called Back in Acapulco, uh, you know, floating in the waves, floating in the crime wave, and all that stuff. So uh, my, the point being that I have a tendency to not just take pictures, but I write poetry, which generally become songs, Mm -hmm. about my travels. And it uh, all started back then. And and, uh, my wife and I, Anna, we like to travel a great deal. And I've uh, compiled a collection of songs over the years, 22 of them, in fact, about my travels. And uh, um, so uh, 11 of the songs that are on this album... Uh, once Upon a Memory, are from the past. They're from the various collections. I've, uh, this is my 14th solo album I've done, and there's been bits of pieces of my travels on various albums, and the other 11 songs are brand-new songs that have never really seemed to fit anywhere or have been waiting for this moment. And let me add, Brian, that the, the reason there's 22 songs is a, a few years ago... I decided not to manufacture CDs anymore. Um, A lot of... You you go buy yourself a new laptop, doesn't even have a CD player in it. Right. (laughs) So not only is it old technology, but when you go to manufacture them, you have to manufacture 500 or 1,000 or whatever, and invariably, after you've sold a few hundred or whatever, you have this, this mountain of stuff in your basement. <laughs> and after 14 albums, I've collected a world of these things. And, um, you know, you can't give them away half the time. So now um, my, my new, uh, uh, the last three releases I, I've done, when you order it at www.terrydaregraper.com, uh, You'll receive a a mailing with a a postcard in it that has the graphics for the new album cover and lists the songs and the players and some other information. And uh, then you get a custom-made flash drive USB stick. In in my case, it's shaped like a little guitar. It's a four-gig drive. And on this new album, you will find the 22 songs, um, five videos I've done of some of the songs, a covering letter, and a 47-page booklet. Wow! Uh, my son taught me to use Photoshop a few years ago, so I do all my own graphics, and I find it just as rewarding as as writing and recording these songs. It's so much fun to take the lyrics and and put them on a uh, you know a, a, on a picture, or just you know doing graphics. So. Mm-hmm. I managed to get all of this information on this little package that I mail out. That's why there's 22 songs. Was that answer too long? No, that's great. That's interesting. Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> now, you yeah. mentioned the videos,
2: um, and uh, you also uh, had an album out what two years ago uh, called Searching, correct?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, but uh, I'm not sure if the videos that, that uh, you had sent me were from that one or from this new one. But one of the videos was you at all different places around the world, uh, like Chichen Itza and uh, uh, the uh, pyramids. In Egypt? Okay, I
0: think, I think that song was called I Would Be King.
2: Yes, that's what it was. Yes.
0: And uh, the reason those pictures appear in that particular video, because uh, I, um, I, if I hadn't have been a musician, if the Beatles hadn't come on Ed Sullivan that night a hundred years ago, <laughs> uh, in my youth, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. Really? And I have not lost my passion for history and ancient buildings. I've actually climbed on, on the pyramids and the Giza Plateau. Wow. Mind you, I didn't make it very far up, because those are really big blocks they were made out of. hmm But I did get a chance to go in the back door there and ride around on horses and camels and, 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 uh, and, and stand by the pyramids. It was quite awe-inspiring.
1: hmm
0: So I've done a fair amount of that in my travels, and the song, I Would Be King is uh, is is about me imagining that I'm Howard Carter for a day. Yeah. And I've discovered Tutankhamun's tomb and Howard Carter in in uh, in my imagination was a king for a day. He he was a king that day he discovered that and uh, my song is I would be king mm-hmm. and I talk about all these places like Atlantis and uh you know, the lost city of Z Um, all sorts of those places. So that's what the song's about. I don't really want to be king. I don't have a drop of blue blood in my veins. (laughs) But, but yeah, that's what that song's about, and that's why there's pictures of me at the pyramids and Chichen Itza and Tulum and a few other places I've managed to uh, visit. I also like history. So this new collection has a song called At Waterloo about uh, Napoleon... Mm-hmm. and Wellington, and uh, all sorts of different songs and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and one of the songs, uh, you, you pay homage to Jules Verne, correct? I'm a big Jules Verne fan. I love to read. In fact, I rarely leave the house without my book, or at least my e-reader because I'd hate to get stuck in traffic and not be able to, and just have to listen to the radio or something, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: just love to read and I always have a book on the go sometimes too. And Jules Verne is one of the masters and uh, that song is all about hanging out with Jules Verne for an afternoon and we can travel under the sea, we can go to the moon and back. We can go around the world in 80 days. There's so much you can do in an afternoon with Jules Verne. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And I love that song. That's a great song. And I, I just love the way that you, you you, orchestrate everything and meld it all together. And, and, and it's just amazing how you can do that.
0: Well, that's, that's it. You know, I've been doing this for about 50 years now, making uh, records, I guess. I don't know what you call them anymore, but I have a tape recorder. Oh. Well, let me rephrase that, Brian. I used to have a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Now I have um, some serious software. And I still, I've had a recording studio since I was a young lad in my teens. So I've, I'm finally getting a handle on how to make these these songs and put them across so that... Uh, so that I, I get my ideas out there, and uh, some of them are real toe tappers.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah! <laughs> now, the songs in, in uh, "Once Upon a Memory" are they all you playing the music, and or is it? Do you have other people involved, or are you, do you do a lot with the, uh, the like you say the computer software or?
0: Uh, It's a combination of all those things. Generally, I play about 90% of everything. Wow. I do the violin arrangements. I play the bass almost always. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, You know, writing a song is a very nice thing to do. I mean, you start with a blank piece of paper, and you sit at the piano or with your guitar, and, and weeks later, sometimes hours later, sometimes 20 minutes later you have scribblings on it, this piece of paper and there exists now something that never did before and that's quite quite rewarding and then i start recording it and uh, you know start basically with the piano and the tempo and we add some drums and my favorite thing to do was to play the bass cuz since paul mccartney uh played the bass. He demonstrated to all of us that there's no latitudes. You can do anything you want with that instrument and make it so much fun. And so, yeah, I do that. I have a guitar player friend, Bill Nado, who's been playing on the last five or six albums. And he's a wonderful guitar player. And I make him do all sorts of guitar acrobatics that a normal guitar player would look upon Uh, He he wouldn't view them in a good light, I know that, Uh, because they're different. And I have a friend, Brenda Webb, this lovely uh, female singer who sings background vocals uh, with me. I met her because uh, a mutual friend asked me to join his band, and he said, I'd like you to join this tribute band. And I I said, Rick, you're kidding, right? He says, no, I "I want you to play drums. I said, what? I said, I haven't played drums in in 20 years. I hardly ever play drums anymore, and that's the instrument I started on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he said, well, take a listen. So I went upstairs, and my wife had gotten the new Adele album for Christmas. This was a few years ago, and five years ago or something. I guess it was 19 at the time, the album. And I listened to it, and I called him back, and I said, you got a girl that can sing this stuff? And he said, I do. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to join your band. So I sat down and played the drums every day for a month, trying to remember how to do all these things. And, of course, then I had to learn these songs that I'd never heard before. And uh, as luck would have it, I met Brenda Webb. Hmm. And uh, her her voice is just stunning. I got her over here to do some, some singing for me on some musicals that I've written. And uh, and then I got her to do some background vocals with me, and I just love the way our two voices mesh together. She does 90% of the background vocals on uh, the songs that that I've been doing for the last 10 years,
1: mm-hmm.
0: five years. Anyway, um, yeah, but uh, I do. Uh, generally, I do most everything else. The title song, Once Upon a Memory, has got a good friend of mine, Freddie Duval, playing drums on it. Because he wanted to. And I said, knock yourself out, Fred. Hmm. <laughs> now, the,
2: the, you mentioned a tribute band You were, they wanted you to be in. Was it for Adele? or It was called An Evening with Adele. With Adele. Okay, I wasn't sure, sure at first who, you know, if you, I thought you were going to tell me it was like a,
0: a tribute band of the Beatles or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've done that. Everybody's done that. Yeah,
2: or a Klaatu Kla- tribute band. <laughs> well,
0: Klaatu was a tribute band to the Beatles. So if, if you want to look at it in that light, that's possible. Uh, no, but Brenda Brenda was wonderful because not only did she, it wasn't just a tribute act, not only she, could she sing these songs, but uh, she would take the time to put on a foam suit, a ton of makeup and a red, red wig, and then affect her cockney accent. So she would come out and pretend to be Adele. Wow. <laughs> and talk to the audience. And so this is Albert Old, is it? <laughs> and that whole thing, like Adele. And then we play these songs, and she's she just wonderful. Huh. So her and I, we're best friends and, and uh, have spent a lot of time together.
2: Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's all these songs uh, you know, uh, all over Morocco, Paris in Spring, Winter in Peru, uh, Let's Go to Mexico. So a lot of them are related to, like you say, places you've been. Uh, Sunnyland. Uh, that's a I, I like that song too. That's a I mean they're all good songs, but uh, some of the ones that uh, stick in my mind, you know.
0: Sunnyland. Yes, that's an interesting one. Uh I had I uh, I wrote that in the uh about 20 years ago. I had a CD out back then called uh Can You Pretend and uh, it was a bunch of songs I'd written for my sons when they were little boys. I had done a children's CD. And it wasn't like like Barney music, or it wasn't talking down to children. It was sophisticated in a yellow submarine kind of way, Mm -hmm. so that all the songs were were, uh, heavily orchestrated, but still simple. I mean, this wasn't complex, but they were simple songs with self-esteem and confidence building messages like... uh, One of the songs was called Blast Off, and the lyric is no matter where you roam, there's no place like home. So after we see the Zygonians, we we get back in the spaceship and come home, because there's no place like home, Mm -hmm. and other songs like that. And I was going to reissue that CD and wanted to put some new songs on it, and Sunnyland was one of the ones I sat down and created just for that event so it's been sitting around for 20 years and ended up on this compilation so that i uh, could you know get it out there finally mm-hmm. but there's other songs that um, the of places that only exist in my imagination like merlindale yeah that's nice and uh, i think there's uh, uh, there's a few of them like that actually the first song i ever wrote in 1969 is called the return of Galadirn." And it's about this uh, Viking warlord who wants to take their homeland back from Goth, the evil dragon. And uh, there's a big showdown and a battle, and you never do find out who wins. (laughs) And, And I thought, I've been working on that off and on for years, because it's it was uh you know it was a very old piece of music and i had all my notes and i tried to recreate it faithfully to what i heard in my head when i was so young and i put it as the second last song on the album followed by once upon a memory which is in fact the most recent song i've written at that time a few months ago um yeah so there's a it's a variety of places to go and visit and, and uh, they're all of my memories, and, mm-hmm. and, and those memories are, are really powerful. The memories you have in life are who you are, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to get at, I guess. Yeah. Now, and plus have a little bit of fun.
2: Right, yeah, yeah. Now, when, when you were a kid, were you musical-oriented back then, or did it happen when you were in school or later on in life, or how did that come about?
0: You know, um, that's a very interesting question because I have a singular history when it comes to to that question. Uh, When I was about five years old, uh, Mom and Dad and I moved back in with my grandmother, who we affectionately called Ma. And I had to share a bedroom with my dad's younger brother, Uncle Bill, who was only ten years my senior, So we had bunk beds in this room and I would go to kindergarten and grade one or whatever and he was in high school and after school we'd come back to the house and in the room he had a record player and he would play all his 78s after school. And so my first introduction into the world of music was uh, the Everly Brothers and Roy Orbison and Elvis mm-hmm. and Jerry Lee Lewis and let's not forget Little Richard. How could you? All right. And uh, I, 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 we moved out eventually, and I had the bug. And on my 10th birthday, I was 10 years old, he showed up at our house and gave me the first LP I ever owned, which was Roy Orbison's Greatest Tits. I've been a fan all my life of Roy and have seen him Uh, quite a few times over the years. And then I started collecting records myself, um, saving up my allowance and buying uh, all of Phil Spector's girl groups and the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. And then, of course, uh, the Beatles came along, and I sat and watched them on Ed Sullivan, like I mentioned earlier, with the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me then and there that, you know, uh, maybe I could actually play music and not just collect it yeah they seemed to make it look so easy <laughs> and 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 it was uh it just it looked attainable and that was it for me i never looked back i forgot about archaeology um you know i didn't i went to university for one year and took some music courses that was a waste of time and i just knew this was what i was going to do and uh and here we are today talking about it all right yeah jeez now how did you guys, i mean i
2: i know you were in many groups over the years leading up to clatu uh but what brought the three of you together uh for clatu itself
0: well um john and i uh went to lived in the same neighborhood a few hundred yards from each other and uh he was a year or two older than me and he played piano had to take piano lessons and he hated it and uh, he liked the beatles when they came along him and i used to play hockey in his backyard he always he would build a rink every winter and i would come over and we would skate together and we hung out and then i got a drum kit and he went out and bought an organ and we started a band with uh this guy jimmy pitkin and called ourselves JP and the Five Good Reasons mm-hmm. and we had a couple of bands along the way and uh, and then John dropped out of that scene and bought a tape recorder and he started writing songs and doing that kind of thing and I carried on, I soldiered on as a drummer in a few bands for a while because we were having a really good time in the late 60s playing and, and meeting all sorts of people women mostly girls I guess they were at the time anyway uh and then so John and I started writing together and I quit playing in bands and uh, then we formed a band and and tried to find a guitar player and and I said to John I said you know I remember I remember meeting this fellow who played in a band uh that was uh booked by the same agency as the band I was in at the time. The band I was in at the time was called The Innocence of Virgil Scott. And Virgil Scott and I, he was Jimmy Pitkin originally, he changed his name. But we've been friends for all these years, still to this day. And there was another band on the same bill often with us, and they were called The Polychromatic Experiment. (laughs) And they were very psychedelic. They did the full-length Inagata De Vida And they had a really fine guitar player named D-Long. And so I I hunted him down, and uh, uh, John and I went to visit him, and we played him some demos that we'd been working on, and he played some tapes that he'd been working on, and uh, we started a band called Mud Cow. And don't ask, I don't know how we got that name either. (laughs) But we tried to make it an all-original progressive rock band and it was really hard to get gigs and we were playing some songs that ended up on Clatu albums uh back then and uh, so but we lived in this house together and we couldn't you know the, we were behind on the rent and we had no heat in the winter cuz we had to fill the tanks with oil or whatever so we eventually learned to play Proud Mary and Jumpin' Jack Flash and a few other songs. So I guess it's early 1970s at this point. And, uh, um, and, and so, they went, okay, now we could get some gigs and play here and there. And the very last gig we played was uh, a week at the Trenton Hotel, which is a small town uh, on Lake Ontario, out toward uh, halfway to Montreal or thereabouts from Toronto. And uh, we we had to do a back in those days, Brian. You had to do a matinee. You had to play Saturday afternoon from one till four. So not only you played six nights a week, but you also had to do the Saturday afternoon matinee. Wow! It was like uh, it was like child labor. Yeah. <laughs> and it was because we were kids, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember playing that gig, and we had a meeting. Uh, we had a meeting in the dressing room, Misty's dressing room. Misty was the stripper who would join us for the last 20 minutes, and she came to meet with us to tell us which song she would, was going to undress to in our set list. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and when the meeting was over, Dee said to us, he said, That's it. I'm done. And that was the last gig Mudcow Cow ever played. That was the last gig any of us played live for many years. Wow. Um, we just, uh, you know, uh, gave it up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we all went back to our tape recorders. I mean, the reason we quit playing live in the first place was because of the covers and playing the bars and playing other people's music. And so um, w- Mud Cow was an opportunity to to express ourselves and be creative and we weren't very good because we were young and we were learning and it died a death Uh, 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 out of the ashes rose the phoenix john got a job working in a recording studio with terry brown who's famous for having produced uh, the early rush albums and a whole uh, clientele of, of canadiana and he owned a studio, and he gave us carte blanche to go in there. So John called D, and they started recording, and they worked with a couple of session drummers. And it didn't feel right because they wanted to, they wanted it to, you know, be a tighter thing. They called me, I joined this band, and we called it Clatou. And we spent three years making the first album because everybody had a job. Um, D worked at his father's electronics factory. I worked at a, uh, a famous record store in Canada called Sam the Record Man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I worked at the uh, at this flagship store in downtown Toronto. I was the head of the 45 department, and uh, I didn't make any money doing that, but this is what we'd rather do this than play the bars. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of the 3 years we made that first album. And it was it, it was a, a blessing in disguise really because we got to make it perfect. Normally you don't get that chance. You know right. the, the the record label throws you in the studio and they book 2 weeks for you or whatever. And uh, what you end up with is what you get. Yeah. But with two we'd go in at Friday night at midnight because there was nobody booked that time. And uh, we would redo the Morocco part on Subrose Subway because we weren't quite happy with it. Mm-hmm. And back then, you couldn't manipulate anything. You had to record right, right. everything. And so um, that anecdote describes how, demonstrates how, how uh we had the opportunity to get it right and do everything and make it perfect and when we had eight songs finished we released the album it was released in august 1976 and uh, uh to, to to little acclaim somebody actually wrote a, a review of us and said that it's uh, uh some, a very good recording reminiscent of uh pink floyd the beach boys Pink Floyd and a bit of Beatles in there.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Or yeah, something I can, like
0: I can see something that. Something
2: like that. Yeah, I can see Queen in there. I can see uh, uh you know, just so many different
0: groups. ELO and <laughs> So uh, that nothing happened um to that release and it was uh released with Capitol worldwide. Um we we were with a small label in Canada called Daffodil Records and uh, the owner of that label, Frank Davies, was good friends with Rupert Perry. They're both from England, and they both worked for EMI. Rupert Perry was now the head of EMI, the president uh, for Capitol Records in Los Angeles. So he went with uh, the album cover and uh, and the eight songs, and a finished product. This is the album, and, and said, I'm shopping this. Are you interested? And and he, And Rupert wanted to meet the guys in the band, and he said, "Sorry, can't do that oh what's the what are their names?" He said, "Sorry, can't tell you <laughs> and 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 Rupert Perry was aghast he said, "You want me to to give you a hundred grand advance for this album and and two more and and you're not going to tell me who's in the band and Frank said, That's the way they want it and That was our stipulation um having been in bands that were all about the, the prettiest guy in, in the in the school learned to play guitar.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
0: very much like uh, the captain of the football team kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, music didn't have a lot to do with it. And then we're here we are in the middle of the 70s, at the height of the glam rock era, where um, it, it's it's uh, it's all about the people in the bands. The music has got nothing to do with it at all. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with this philosophy. You've got to remember, we were in our early 20s. We were still very young men, highly idealistic, um, living uh, uh, hand-to-mouth, day-to-day, virtually, mm-hmm. and uh, not really caring because we'd never had any success, didn't know, wouldn't know what to do with it if we got it. So we stuck by our guns, and, and our, our catchphrase was, we'll let the music speak for itself. So there will be no names, no photographs, which put a great deal of pressure on us when it came to doing artwork for the album covers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I I, uh, took that uh, as my responsibility, because I've always been about the graphics and and the way things are presented. John and Dee wrote the the lion's share of the music back in those days, although John and I did write Calling Occupants together and so i looked after all that and i found this fellow ted jones and uh, uh we knew we wanted the sun as our logo um our running joke was that it's free advertisement because the sun comes up every day <laughs> and so we were plus it has all the the egyptian gods uh, Sun Ra,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: all those different uh you know every culture every ancient culture worshiped the sun and uh we just thought it was a a cool idea to use the sun as our logo so we found this fabulous artist Ted Jones and uh we started work on the album cover with him well the first sketch he brings to us he's got this um uh the sun's face um looks looks like uh, looks like a a saint nick like santa claus mm-hmm. actually it looked very much like ernest borgnine <laughs> and and <laughs> And we said, no, no, Ted, that's not right. It's, that's way too, way too uh, grounded. We don't want some jolly old man. We need something that's, that's more eclectic. And he came back to us with the face that's on the cover of that first album now, which appears on every one of our albums in some form or another. Mm-hmm. And that's that very Mona Lisa um, uh, generic uh, alien face and yep. it looks human but it it doesn't it it's uh it's eclectic it's very cool and then we said okay now we need a recipient for these sun's rays so to something to give life to and then ted comes back to us with the sketch and now he's drawn a beaver on the cover and uh, we said ted no 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 please I know we're Canadian, but no beavers. <laughs> we don't want to be provincial. We want to be worldly. So we gave him a Beatrix Potter book and sent him home with one of those, and he came up with the mouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- now the mouse appears on all of our records and the graphics in some form or other. Yeah.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: And uh, so the first album came out uh, to little acclaim or no acclaim, and uh, we began work on the second album because we knew what we were doing and we knew we had a good product. The second album was a concept album uh, about this lighthouse keeper, and it's my, I'm, I'm very fond of this album mostly because I wrote the story of the lighthouse keeper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was reading an As- uh, Isaac Asimov book on astronomy and uh, there's this thing called Bode's law that he was talking about and it's uh, it's this uh calculation where planets are equidistant or or they at a certain space away from the sun given a sun of our strength and he goes on to talk about how there should be a planet where the asteroid belt is out beyond mars mm-hmm. and i thought oh cool what a great idea <laughs> These people have blown their planet to smithereens because they're so violent and aggressive, which all harkens back to the Klaatu uh, n- n- name that we took from the Michael Rennie character in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right, yes. And, uh, and then so I wrote this story about this one surviving member of his race. The lone survivor takes it upon himself to build a, a solar flare, a lighthouse, that will guide all the spaceship traffic through the remnants of his planet. It's the least he can do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, John and Dee took the idea and wrote the music for the Hope album. So we're in the midst of, uh, we've recorded all the bed tracks. We've uh, go to England. We're in London, England at Olympic Studio. That was really exciting. The King Crimson albums were done there. I was blown away. Wow and uh we recorded the uh london philharmonic orchestra eighty three piece orchestra in that studio this huge room and uh w- while we were in the course of, of recording the uh the orchestra onto the hope album um somebody came in with this uh newspaper article about this uh guy in Rhode island uh providence rhode island had written a fairly conclusive article proving that we're in fact the beatles recording under a new name <laughs> that was in february of 77 mm-hmm. and it was like so we looked at this article and we all had a good laugh and then went back to work because we were in, this was a complex project we were working on recording a, a, a symphonic orchestra on our bed tracks and it was it was intense. We didn't have time to devote to this thing. And so we just forgot about it. And a couple of weeks later, we got back to Toronto and started putting this album together, the Hope album. And uh, the phone started ringing and never stopped. Never stopped for a couple of years or a year anyway until somebody found out that the the guys that wrote those songs, they went to the Library of Congress in Washington <laughs> and found out that the authors of those songs... Uh, it's not uh, Lennon and McCartney. It's these three schmucks from Toronto, <laughs> and uh, and and as luck would have it, uh, our record stopped selling. Every Clan Two record sold less than its predecessor. Wow, and and the, and the
2: thing is, like you had said earlier, the music speaks for itself. The music is good. Why didn't it, you know? Why did people bother with all this other stuff?
0: You know, I mean, it was great music. Well, what had happened is, I think that the uh, the audience and and not so much the audience, but the media itself, mm-hmm. radio and and newsprint, all of those people felt that we duped them, mm-hmm. that we'd had them on, that we planned this. And I'll tell you what, nobody suffered more from it than we did.
1: I'm sure. It was
0: not our plan to do this. And I guess we should have come out of the closet, if you will, Brian, and said, hey, no, 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 we're not the Beatles. We're just these three guys. But we wanted to stick by our guns and let the music speak for itself. Right. I mean, we're not particularly handsome fellows, the three of us, (laughs) and we're not particularly gregarious. So what's the point of having these pictures? I mean, it just wasn't what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We wanted to take people to someplace else that wasn't um, a rock band on stage with pyrotechnics and flashing lights and, mm-hmm. and spectacle. We wanted to take you in the middle of the night to the outside edges of our solar system mm-hmm. and leave you there. Yeah. yeah. Could Could you have
2: done this music, especially from your first album with Calling Occupants and everything, uh, or any of the others. I mean, they were they were all very orchestral. Uh, could you have done those without, you know, just the group itself, without a whole orchestra behind you?
0: No, um, no. And, and that's partly the way we made the music. And this is interesting you bring this up because people often ask me how we made those records. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the number of songs that we played, all three of us together at the same time, I could probably count on one hand. Really? Uh, What we would do is we would uh, take, somebody bring a song in, like John brings a song in and everybody wants to record this, and so we'd find a good tempo with the metronome. Yeah, that feels good. Okay, he'd go play the piano. Mm -hmm. And then he'd go out and throw a quick vocal on it so we know what we're doing and then i'd go out and play the drums and then he'd play the bass and then d would play some guitars and then we'd do some some org how whatever uh, we, we, you know the that but that's how the the scenario unfolded yeah. and here's the point of that is that the three of us i include terry brown here sitting in the control room were telling the fellow out there in the in the studio with the instrument the three of us were telling him what to play wow uh, like, it's like, okay, D, you know that lick you just played there that, that, uh, after, in the second verse? That's a great lick, but w- when you end it, go to the minor third instead of the tonic and resolve it. It'll leave us hanging, it'll set up the, okay, right, let me try that again. And so, so what happened is that the, the men that weren't playing the instrument had more control than the guy that actually played the instrument. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people that we, we made the music with our ears, not with our hands.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: And I still do that to this day, even though on my own records I play almost everything. But I'm, I, I layer it and build it, and I'm always playing it from the, the perspective of what the song dictates and what does, it, what does the audience want to hear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not about what I want to play. Um, you know, some songs I do don't have very much drums in them at all, and I'm a drummer. Yeah. Well, they don't need much drums. They need, uh, you know, they need violins. So, we do violins. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's amazing that you. So, you guys, when you made uh, "Calling Occupants" or whatever, any of the songs on that album, it, you didn't have a, you know, 160-piece orchestra playing. You guys were doing each thing and adding it on layer, layer, over, overdubbing, and all the things like that.
0: Yeah, and then we'd get get a string section in for some rows of Subway. One of the guys that worked there, Doug Riley, a brilliant musician, had a band called Dr. Music. He uh, would write the scores for the strings, hire the musicians, and and put them on the record. And then we'd have, you know, 20 guys playing or whatever. But Calling Occupants is one of the songs that we did what I would call live off the floor. I played the drums, John played the piano, and D played the mellotron.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So D's playing all the flutes and the violins on the mellotron and all of the the horns and everything there are no horns. Those horns were all done with a synthesizer. Wow. And uh, we and the synthesizer we had at the time like they all were were pa- uh, monophonic. You could only play one note at a time. Mm-hmm. So we'd record one line and then record a harmony to it, and then get another sound and record a counterpart to it, and we build this horn section out of six or eight uh, different instruments and have to do them all separately and build it. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was very complex. But well, we had three years. Yeah, we a lot had, of you know, work
2: went into that song <laughs> or that album.
0: It, it was It was an awful lot of work, but we were so young, and it was such a joy to get into a recording studio and learn and, and re, regurgitate all the lessons we'd learned a short 10 years earlier from a band called The Beatles when they released Sgt. Pepper in 67. Right. Less than 10 years later, we released the 347 EST album. And uh, yes, there's some songs that sound like The Beatles, but we've done our homework. hmm and and came up with a a, a piece of of plastic that st- stands the test of time. Oh,
2: definitely! I, I, you know, uh, the music is just amazing, and people, a lot of people don't realize it's out there, and they should because it's it's a, it's an amazing album, and uh, you know they should go out and get that as well as your. Your new album, Once Upon a Memory. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking about that, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I got to ask you something, though. But uh, in your clock two years uh, with that album, uh, with Calling Occupants, um, there were, of course, a lot of things people said, you know, oh, this shows it's a Beatles and this shows it was the Beatles. Uh, but during the song California Jam, the guy that sings, there's a like a, you know, they sing the song, then there's an instrumental pause, and then it's changing tune. And I don't know all the, the fancy names of, of, of the music stuff, but um, one guy sings California. And right. And who sang that? Because that did sound like Paul McCartney, i got to admit.
0: <laughs> Actually, that fellow's name is Raymond Gassi, and he was a friend of ours and played in another band, and uh, we had to do a TV show back in 1974, called the Keith Hampshire's Music Machine. And uh, and he did that, that vocal on the record, and we got him to come and be in the band with us to do that song. So it looked like we were actually playing it. We, we rehearsed the miming to the song, I mean, you've seen lots of bands who go up and play to their songs and nobody's playing the right drum fill right. and their, their hands are, you know, they're picking when they're not playing and playing when they're not picking. And it's just a mess. Now, when we had to do this TV show, I sat down for two weeks and rehearsed my part in the studio, in the, in the control room. I set my drums up and put the song on really loud so I could play along with it. And I made sure that, Everything I did on the record, I, I recreated for this, this miming, the filming. And it really looks like we're playing it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, so we had no compunction about, about uh, finding other musicians to come and help make it better. Yeah. There was other guitar players that came along, and we'd get them to play, and we'd hire a sax player, and uh, whatever it took... To, to make this song better, mm-hmm. uh, the egos were, were in the back seat, and the song was in the front seat.
1: Yeah.
0: And like you and said... It's, that's, hard, that's difficult when you're in a band. You've got to remember that a band is very much like a marriage, only instead of two people, there's three, four, or five, right. or God forbid, eight or ten. <laughs> and and uh, how those mad bands managed to stay together is a mystery to me, because mm-hmm. it was tough enough for it with three of us. Wow but like you said, you were
2: saying that, that you didn't have a, a studio uh, not a studio but a, a, a record company telling you what to do with this album which it probably never would have turned out like it did if you had had one right because you could like you say you do you could do what you wanted to as opposed to them saying come on we got two weeks get this thing done and you know ship it out
0: <laughs> well yeah exactly and you know there's a great quote from frank zappa that i've read recently And uh, he said that the the, the mid-later 60s was a very special time. And it was a good time to be creative because you you go to the record label and the president of the record company is this 50- or 60-year-old bald cigar-chomping guy. And uh, he listens to the new record. He says, I don't know. I don't know what the kids... Well, put it out there. See what happens. And uh, 20 or 30 years later... The, the young fellas that worked them and worked their way up, they, they, they say the opposite. They say, no, nah, no, nah, that's not what the kids want to hear. I know what the kids want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear this. Yeah. And so the, anything that's a, a little off-center, and the mothers of invention is a case in point. Right. <laughs> and that's why Frank r- realizes and lived this, because their music was so off the wall, but they got a shot. Mm-hmm. And and he ended up being one of the most prolific music, musicians of this or any generation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and and because that people didn't know, and so let's let's experiment, let's try it. Now today, I mean, you look at the latest Beyonce song that won a Grammy or whatever, and there's like 13 songwriters and 14 producers. Yeah. Uh, and it's like what? You you need all those people to do that, right? And I don't want to cast dispersions because I don't know what Beyonce does. I right. I don't listen to to music uh, anymore except my own. I find it it's insidious. It gets inside my head, and and uh, I just I just want to do what I do. Yeah. yeah. And and not be influenced or affected. Yeah.
2: So. Have you guys ever thought of getting back together and and uh, doing a you know.
0: A tour or anything like that? Um, we we did that sort of once. Um, we did a fifth and final album for Capitol Canada only. Uh, Capitol US had dropped us because of, that's a that's a really long story. But in any event, the deal to have a fifth and final album with us in complete control um, was granted to us, provided we took it on the road. So we finished this album on a shoestring budget and did a really nice job because it was like the good old days again where uh, we had unlimited studio time and uh, we built a new facility for it and that's what we used the the money for and then walked away from it when we were done. And then we spent nine months touring across Canada with this band and we hired three more musicians to play. In fact, we hired a a rhythm section, a drummer, a drummer, a bass player, and another keyboard player who did all the violins and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And John and Dee and I were out front playing guitars and pianos and vocals and keyboards, whatever needed to put some of these songs across.
1: Yeah.
0: And after a while, that was just an untenable situation. It was so expensive, and and it wasn't a lot of fun, you know, living in, in hotels,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: being on the road. And we never got out of Canada. That's It's... Uh, it was a tough night, and it was too little, too late.
1: Yeah.
0: It was, you know, it was over.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and and then uh, to address your question, um, yes, we did a reunion in 2005, and uh, we did a meet and greet with two fans. Um, and they came from uh, Switzerland and Germany, all over the U.S., wow. came to Toronto to watch to mm-hmm. meet us. And uh, I said, just about two weeks before this event, I said to John and D, I said, you know, this is kind of silly. These people are coming, and we've agreed to do this thing, and we're not going to play. I said, we should get, grab our three acoustic guitars, and we'll just sit there and play a half a dozen songs that are really easy to recreate. Mm-hmm. And John said, and John D said, you know, great idea. Let's do it. So the next day, I get a call from John. He says, you know, my song, uh, All Good Things, we're going to do, uh, he says, you know, that, that, that violin line in the middle, you know, the little flute solo in the center, he said, that's really important. Do you have a keyboard? I said, yeah, I got a keyboard. So the next day, Dee calls me, and we're doing his song Cherie from the Sir Army Suit album. And he says, you know, that that violin line out of the gate, it's like really powerful, really important. We really need that to pull this off. Do you have a keyboard? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I do. So when we uh, ended up doing this, uh, I don't really call it a concert. We only did six songs. I call it a recital.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, John played acoustic guitar and sang. Dee played his uh, Stratocaster, his electric guitar and sang. And we had a a woman join us to do some of the harmonies that none of us could no longer reach. (laughs) And I was there. I brought my bass drum and a hi-hat and a tambourine and two keyboards. Wow. (laughs) So I was playing all of the little incidental things while I was playing the bass drum and the hi-hat with my feet. It looked like I was busking. (laughs) in downtown toronto but we recorded that album and it turned out really nicely and we eventually released it uh i don't know when 2010 or something we released it and we called it solology and we threw some other crap on there that had been hanging around like some house cleaning outtakes of different songs or or versions without vocals with really nice string lines and stuff um yeah. So but that was it. No, and when, there's no we're not going to get back together again. Yeah.
1: Um
0: yeah. you know, nobody's interested. Um John left the music business completely. I think he plays Beatles songs at home once in a while. <laughs> and uh I I've, I've been focused on my own career. When the band broke up in '82, um uh, that was it for me. I was done with the music business. They didn't want nothing to do with us. I didn't want nothing to do with them. I I quit the music business. I got married, had a couple of children, my two sons, and I got my roofing business up and running because I I was a handyman kind of guy, and I learned roofing as a trade while I was between bands in the early 70s, so I went back to it with a vengeance and tore down the little house I'd bought on the lake up here and built this huge home and and uh, my wife's a school teacher, and I kept on recording. I had a tape recorder and making demos and writing songs and having a grand old time. But I went out and did all those things that most musicians don't get a chance to do until you're successful or older or you have to leave the business and, you know, have a life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, was, uh, it turned out okay. So 15 years later, 1997, I put out my first solo CD, And I just put out the 14th one, uh, you know, 20 years later, uh, in January. Yeah. And here it is. All that Klaatu stuff is Once Upon a Memory, which brings us back
2: to your your new album.
0: (laughs) The song Once Upon a Memory even uh, has a couple of Beatle references, references, although they're veiled, and it talks about uh, the boys in the band and it's it's all about those memories you share and yeah. and looking back and the this is who you are i said earlier and yeah. that's what that song's about
2: well terry everybody should go out and get your album uh, or what do they call them now? <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I'm, so, you know, I'm from the, the old time, you know, the LPs and, and the 45s. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, I catch myself using the word record, and I right. quickly get rid of that one. I call them albums because it's an album of songs, and whether it comes on a compact disc or vinyl or, like I'm doing, on these little uh, flash drive USB sticks, and which is kind of cute when you know there's yeah. this, uh, this little um, little picture of a on um, the postcard that I send out of these little guitars and and uh, you plug it into your computer and it's got my URL on it and uh, yeah. I've taken a lot of care to, to to do this and I I don't have a a great following but I have a dedicated following people who like what we did and what I'm still doing
1: yeah
2: it's all great a lot of
0: the music I make harkens back to those those uh, ideas of yeah. how to make music that Klaatu learned.
2: Mm-hmm. Once again, Terry, tell us where you where people can get "Once Upon a Memory" or any of your albums.
0: www.terrydraper.com. Uh, you can even have listen to snippets uh, on that website of mine. You can buy it there. You can download this stuff from iTunes or. Uh, you know, but it's not on any streaming services. I refuse to allow my music on a streaming service because they just give it away. It's not free. It's, right. it's free. It, it, you don't get paid. Yeah. And uh, you know, at this stage of the game, if you want to hear what I'm doing. You, you're going to have to pay to hear the whole song. Come over to my place at www.terrydraper.com. Have a listen to a few snippets. If you like what you hear, let's see the color of your money.
1: Right,
0: <laughs> I know your money's all the same color. I know, but up here we say that because our tens are purple, our fives are blue. Right, they're all changing. <laughs> it's a very psychedelic financial
2: world in Canada. Yeah. Well, Terry, I'd like to finish up with two final questions. Now, this takes us away from your current music, your past music, everything else. But when you sit back and relax. What are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what's your favorite movies now and of the
0: past? Huh, interesting. Interesting question. I was all set to go somewhere else. I know, you probably figured music, right? <laughs> well, I thought, yeah, who do I, I listen to Streisand and Sinatra and yeah. <laughs> when I do listen to music, uh, but that's interesting, that's interesting. But what are you
2: watching on TV now? What, what shows uh, do you tend to, to watch? Uh,
0: yeah, um, I, I, I guess I'm a, Yeah, I I watch TCM a lot. Mm -hmm. I I love the old black and white movies. I love that the care was put into them. I love the music that goes around and the the lighting. They're very powerful. There's messages. Some of them are are kind of cheesy and stuff, but I like the uh, old movies, Um, and I watch the, the, the History Channel when they have something that's not the Swampers or the... Yukon Tire or so I don't know what that crap's all about. <laughs> but I like um, History Channel and uh, those kinds of things. Game of Thrones is right up my alley.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I think that's just so well done. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: and all of those kinds of uh, movies. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the Indiana Jones series... That, that That was like wow, that tickled my face I'm sure it, it did <laughs> when that stuff came out um uh like that, yeah, movies I watched uh, the shape of water last night you did how was how' did you like it i I had mixed feelings, I thought it was extremely well done, it was really dark, the acting was spectacular, but a couple of times I kind of giggled it's like really. <laughs> I think they could have cut 20 minutes out, and it would have been fine. I didn't see it as best picture of the year, although I don't know what else. You know, I don't watch a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I watched Woody Harrelson in LBJ last month. That blew me away. I thought his recreation of that and and the way they presented it was really well done. Mm
1: hmm yeah.
2: Now, did you enjoy the, this movie? You talk about old movies, and, and I'm not saying I like this movie just because of, I'm talking to you, but did you like The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original,
0: not not the Absolutely. remake? Absolutely. I actually went to the theater to see the Keanu Reeves remake, and it was horrible. I know, yeah. It was just horrible. <laughs> but the, the uh, but that's the reason we picked that name, actually. Yeah. John and Dee and I were all sci-fi freaks. I mean, if The Blob with Steve McQueen comes on, I'm watching it. Yep. <laughs> I don't too. care how bad it is. I love those Japanese movies with Godzilla and Rodan the Flying Monster, Mothra. I just love science fiction. And mm-hmm. when John suggested we call the band Klaatu, D and I instantly agreed, what a great name. Yes. The emissary who comes from another planet to save Earth. Oh yeah, that's us. Yeah aren't we you know in our high mindedness and our idealistic little world we we thought we could uh you know save the world mm-hmm. or at least change it for an afternoon and put a smile on your face
2: yeah well, Terry, I can't thank you enough. This has been fascinating, and I hope our listeners have been listening and, and hearing all about your past and your new music, and I hope they go out and get both of them, the new, the new music you have, which is great, and the Klaatu music, which was was also fantastic. So uh, I thank you very much for sharing
0: with us. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, you brought up some, some fond memories, and uh, I hope I managed to... Uh, elucidate upon them in in an interesting fashion.
2: And a big shout-out going to Terry Draper, member of Two, and now on his own, and he's got some great songs on Once Upon a Memory. Be sure to get that album because it's great songs on it, and like I say, there's 22 songs, and uh, it's pretty neat the way he does it with the little... uh, the uh, memory stick there and uh, you get the whole that and it's, it's really a good thing so check it out it's a lot of great songs on it and uh, if you're while you're at it check out the, if you've never heard it check out the klaatu album and uh, or any of them because they're all great great songs on all of them and uh, see what you think but uh, it uh stirred up a lot of things back in the 70s and uh now he's still going strong he has been ever since he was in klaatu and uh, We're so glad that he could join us. Well, we've got a lot of great guests lined up coming up our way here on On Screen and Beyond. And uh, Marion Ross, like I have been telling you, uh, she'll be coming up um, this this month. She's coming up on this month. And uh, we also have uh, a lot of other great people coming your way. So get ready. Keep listening to On Screen and Beyond. Tell a friend. Like us on Facebook. Uh, Just let people know. That's the way people are going to hear about it. More and more, we've got uh, thousands and thousands of listeners every week, and we hope that we're bringing you the guests that you'd like. If you have a suggestion for a guest, send it to me at feedback at com. I'll see what I can do. If you've got a connection with somebody uh, that was in a movie or a TV show or a, a band or anything, uh, send me the information. would love to get in touch with these people, and uh, we'll see what we can do about getting them on the show. And uh, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when do we once again take you on screen and beyond? I'm Brian Zimrak. Take care. <laughs>